And welcome to PodPod, the podcast all about podcasting for podcasters. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and I'm joined this week by Matt Hill, who runs Rethink Audio and is the co-founder of the British Podcast Awards, and Reem Makari, PodPod journalist and researcher. Hi, both. Hello. Hello. And also my daughter, Freya, who is off from nursery today <laughs> and sit next to me watching Sarah and Duck. Say hello, Freya. <laughs> no. So apologies if Freya interrupts every now and then. I'd be absolutely delighted. First of all, congrats, team. We have been nominated for a PPA award for Podcast of the Year, which is very exciting. Ooh. Yeah, I can't believe it. Maybe our listeners can't either, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> what has been going on in the world of podcasting? Reem? This is fitting for today's episode, which talks about the BBC. Ofcom has released a new operating license for the BBC, which mostly focuses on transparency and discoverability. So transparency in terms of being more open about the type of content plans that they have in their animal plan, their performance, and then later on looking back on it and seeing if they delivered on any of the promises that they were saying they were going to deliver so that they could be held more accountable. And also being more transparent in terms of plans for BBC Sounds and iPad player which until now have not had much detail that was public in terms of, of, of what they want to do and things like discoverability how they're going to make their platform more visible and get people to discover more BBC content because a part of the research was talking to groups of, of listeners and some of them are saying that sometimes they don't even realize they're listening to a BBC Sounds podcast because they'd be listening on like Apple podcasts mm-hmm. and then they would go on the BBC website and they wouldn't even realize that the platform has so much of its own original content so asking them to kind of increase their discoverability which it's very interesting and and i think especially the transparency stuff to hold them accountable yeah i saw a tweet by jake Cantor at deadline this week that was talking about um, how on thursday the bbc then announced a, another round of programming cuts to make up for all the inflation that's been put upon the bbc over the last year so they've just got to make more cuts, but ironically didn't actually specify what any of them would be. So there we go, transparency. <laughs> what kind of impact do you think this extra discoverability is going to have on podcasters, Matt? Well, it's hard to say from an independent point of view, because obviously the BBC only controls its own domain in terms of like BBC Sounds. What I would like to see is a nice little button that says, listen on BBC Sounds, that you could put on your on the websites and everything that kind of click through and open up the app. But I was also like that button for independent podcasts as well. I would like a button which meant that you could just have on your website or whatever that said, listen on BBC Sounds, and it just opened up your RSS on their app and you could listen on BBC Sounds as well mm. and follow it on there as well. They wouldn't have to curate anything, but they would at least have a button that said you could at least easily get it on there. And I think it was something that was promised when the app launched, actually, but straight hasn't come to be so oh. I know a little bit more of that transparency please yeah and if this sounds like a, a, a slightly cynical episode about the BBC so far just wait <laughs> <laughs> well yes as both Matt and Reem have teased this is a kind of BBC bumper app because we're going to be talking to Roger Bolton and Kate Dixon so Roger Bolton is a presenter and specifically a presenter of feedback a BBC Radio 4 show and uh, Kate Dixon is the producer of that that show. So off the back of them leaving the BBC, they launched Bee Watch, which is a podcast which covers BBC's output and all of the kind of wider issues facing it. So we kind of talked to them about anything and everything BBC content related, especially thinking about how much talent seemed to be leaving the BBC, which we've covered quite a lot on PodPod. And I would say as well that it'd be very easy to say that Roger Sour Grapes left the BBC, doesn't like the BBC anymore. But I think he does have some really interesting things to say about what the BBC does really well and what we love about it, what Roger loves about it, what we love about it, and what should change and how the culture might be improved to make everyone's enjoyment of the BBC that much better. Absolutely. This isn't just BBC bashing it's it's all trying to kind of preserve an institution love. that you know, we would like to see continue so here are roger bolton and kate dixon talking to me and matt all about the bbc and bee watch roger bolton and kate dixon welcome to pod pod thank you so much for joining us pleasure pleasure We've covered 
quite a lot on PodPod about how the BBC doesn't seem to be able to keep hold of some of its top talent for whatever reason. And I know that you've covered this quite a lot on Beatwatch, your podcast. So we'd love to kind of drill down into that. But first of all, let's talk about Beatwatch and how it came to be. So what was the original idea for it? Where did it come from? It came from Kate. <laughs> Kate. So Kate it came from unemployment, I think is, <laughs> yeah, is the word. So I'd been producing Roger on Feedback for the last three years and we were heading to the end of our final series in August and essentially taken aback with the final programme and the reaction that we got from listeners, but also on Twitter and in the press. And there was an article of BBC Online about Roger's departure and it got over a million hits and they did a follow-up interview with Roger. And so I thought, gosh, <laughs> people are really sad that Roger's going. There was hardly any negative comment about him going at all. Certainly Twitter was saying from all sides of the political spectrum that you know people were sorry that he was going. So we've spent the last three years talking to people who are talking about changing media landscapes and moving into podcasting. And I thought, well, you know, here we have talent, a broadcast talent that people obviously still want to listen to. Um, I'm going to be sending out my CV shortly to try and get a job. Uh, Why not? Let's give a podcast a go. And obviously the past three years under lockdown, we'd been producing the programme remotely. So we knew how to put on a programme. I mean, I had to learn quite a lot in terms of technically editing Mm. Uh, we had an SM before so I'd just shove everything over to him every Mm -hmm. week while I had to start doing that I had to work out how to publish the thing I had to work out you know getting artwork getting and just learning properly about the podcast world because I've essentially been making programs for the BBC for the last 18 years how long did that take you to get to grips with all of that we're still still (laughs) (laughs) yes Yes, uh, I'm getting better and better. And I mean, we we finished literally at the end of August Mm. and and there was an an outcry. And I thought, if we're going to do this, we need to do this quickly. You know, make sure we keep, you know, ride with the momentum. Yes. Because it'll only take about a month or so and they'll be saying not... Completely. Yeah, but, watch watch it. It. <laughs> but I think the other, the other thing was, apart from my ego, which is always, you know, a, a strong element in all of this, <laughs> I wanted to, you know, not not to retire entirely. And it was because we could see the inevitable impact of this squeeze on BBC finances. As you know, the, the licence fees, basically, large elements of the Conservative Party don't like the BBC. They've realised they can't move against it in a number of different ways because they alienate the public. So the simplest way of dealing with it is to put a financial squeeze on, mm. which is what they've done mm-hmm. uh, at a time when everything is getting squeezed. So you've got a situation whereby the licence fees freeze for two years and then will go up with the rate of inflation, but not the rate of broadcasting inflation. Well, you put that into your brain and you know it's inevitably going to happen they're going to start cutting things. Mm -hmm. And being the BBC and the way it operates, it won't consult people who pay for it about what gets cut. So we thought, the public. (laughs) So we thought there's a real opportunity there to draw attention to the public about what's happening and the knowledge that there will be a whole range of stories coming down the line which we could develop. And also, you know the BBC is catastrophically incompetent when it comes to personnel issues, so we knew there'd be a few of that as well. So we're still very much supporters of the BBC, but we could see what was likely to happen. And then you look around and you think, well... They'll do their best on the media show and, and in many ways do their best on feedback. But the additional freedom we would have to podcast mm. means that we can actually try and explore, both explore these issues, but also an awful lot of people out there who have worked for the BBC or are interested in the media and broadcasting who have things to say. And I suppose what the final thing which drove us is that the, we are approaching a, well, one of our interviewees, Sir Peter Basiljet, said uh, that broadcasting, a public service broadcasting or public service media, but he meant mainly broadcasting, is in an ex- existential crisis. I mean, ITV is wondering whether it should stay a public service broadcaster. Channel 4 has avoided privatization, but only just, and is still, in my view, quite confused. And so there's a crisis going on, and there needs to be a debate. Mm. And none of the major players in this want a debate that involves the public. They'd rather get on and deal with what they want and so on. So we hope to be able to open it up a bit uh, 
to the public. So when you're taking those subjects each week, is that, are you taking the topics from listeners and the public or just what is kind of generally being talked about in the news? How do you kind of land on a subject each week? Kate's, oh, well, you tell them Kate, but basically Kate comes out of news and current affairs as I do. So that's yeah, we're news hounds, essentially. Mm. So we want to be talking about the interview that matters this week. Um, sometimes it works and we get the right person at the right time. I'd say most of the time, actually. There's a, there's only been one um, person that I was able to book a few weeks in advance uh, and had to, and that was Stephen Fry. So that was something that was set in stone for that particular week. But other than that, I mean, this week we're not, you know, we've got some bids in, but we don't know who we're interviewing this week. And so we very much hope to reflect on something that's going to be important this week. And I think that's our strength is that we are current affairs. And that's why nearly every week at the moment we've been picked up in the press. uh, But the only key thing there we've learned is, uh, and it's entirely Kate's doing, is that if if you're doing, for example, about 10 years ago, we interviewed Paul Hughes, who was the former boss of the BBC Singers, who went through the roof on the programme about what was happening. You know, fortunately, Kate has contacts uh, in PR and whatever, so we could get, we interviewed him, and that night we could get the quotes out and so on. And that's another thing we've learned, that if you want to be picked up by the news cycle and people then perhaps are attracted to your podcast, you've got to get the quotes out Mm. quickly, and Mm. you've been brilliant at that. Mm. I want to take you back to that first episode of Beep Watch and how that came to be, because the BBC wouldn't have bequeathed you the RSS feed for feedback to to take with you. So you really are starting from zero and trying to get as many of those um, existing listeners over to your feed as possible for the first week to keep that momentum going. How successful was that? And um, what sort of proportion of your audience do you think have come with you on that journey? How many are, are yet to know that you exist? The first episode was at the end of September. So it was literally something like three, three and a half, four weeks after we'd finished uh, doing feedback. I felt that the first episode, we, you know, obviously finding our way, weren't quite sure how we were going to proceed with the podcast. Because we're timely, because we're, we're, we're trying to reflect what's been going on, I knew, you know, the, the Queen had died and there'd been a huge amount of coverage on her funeral and so forth. That would be the main source of feedback in the feedback inbox and uh, how, how it was covered. So we, we knew uh, that would be the topic we'd cover, we would cover. And frankly, if we'd been at feedback, we went for the person we would ordinarily have gone for, which is Richard Eyre, who had huge experience at the BBC, was the first person who was actually coming up with ideas on to present coverage on, on a royal day. Well, he, he said that when he was, a, I think, deputy head of news and they said, what happens if uh, the Duke of Edinburgh dies? This would be the 1980s. He was sent away and said, there are no plans at all. <laughs> at all. It was a Queen Mother, wasn't it? Oh, it was a Queen Mother, Queen Mother, and she was at no that point. At there was no plans at all. <laughs> so what was lovely about doing that first podcast was the freedom of not doing feedback anymore. Mm. So we, we could talk to him about what he did in his past, as well as the recent coverage and what he thought could happen in the future now ordinarily if we'd done him for feedback i would have hacked him down to something like 12 minutes Mm -hmm. including listener comment we were able to run that interview in full Mm. you know 20 odd minutes or so and then added to that we did a little package just to get a flavor of what people thought and i think the difference is also would you know the danger of feedback i'm a great fan of feedback and i like the new presenter by the way and i have no regret i have no complaints about ceasing to do it after 22 years. I have plenty of complaints by the way they did it, mm. but you know, not, not actually stopping to do it because I had a good run. But the thing about feedback is its strength is you've got to be driven by the listener. You shouldn't interpolate too much of your own views and opinions. It's the listener's show. Well, on this one, uh, when we're, for example, doing that first programme, Richard, you can raise questions about, you know, the BBC's attitude to uh, royalty, and to what extent it is impartial. Mm. And this, you could deal with this schizophrenia in the BBC, which is on the one hand, it wants to be regarded as the national broadcaster that brings things together and it will do the state occasions and isn't it wonderful and whatever. And there's another bit over here that thinks, yeah, but hold on, there's a significant but small Republican minority. We should give, be giving them a, a voice, shouldn't mm-hmm. we? And then we were able to, in a subsequent podcast, talk to David Dimbleby, who talks about, talked to us openly about the sycophancy he thought towards the royal family. You know, well, this is, 
this is really interesting stuff to be able to do, which is more difficult to do when you really should be driven by what the audience writes or emails you to say. Mm. You always, we always tried to extend it, but, it, but we could just say, right, we fancy doing this. Mind you, it should be clear, feedback's broadcasting. To a degree, what we are doing is narrowcasting. We're growing the audience. But, of course, we make, we, we make more news. Mm. I think pe- more people will be aware of us by the good fortune of the news we've made rather than the, listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. So there's that, that's what the relationship is about. But we're, we're also we're trying to just influence the debate, not in a particular direction, but to, about the future of, of podcasting and broadcasting and public service media, but trying to make sure that certain questions are raised. Who knows what a lot of the answers are, but they should be raised. Yeah. And it's not in the interests of a lot of the broadcasters to raise these issues. The word freedom has come up already in this interview. It's come up in numerous interviews that we've done with the news agents, for example. And I, I kind of really want to get into that. First of all, though, do you think that the, the BBC is a really important place in terms of training younger kind of presenters and as a kind of a talent pipeline, I suppose, especially for podcasters, because that's that's kind of where it seems a lot of the talent seem to be going straight from the BBC. It's vital. Kate, yeah. The BBC is absolutely vital, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm very concerned about. Mm. I know you want to talk about the brain drain, and we'll be talking about presenters, but it's the people behind, it's mm. the producers. Where are they going to get trained up if, you know, local radio's being squeezed? opportunities are being diminished where are you going to get those people coming into the industry and then people like me who've come out of it out of the BBC who's got the confidence to give this a go if I hadn't had the experience that I've had at the BBC would I've would I've done what I've done which Mm -hmm. is kind of quite a big leap actually but the other key thing about the leap is that we don't you know we'd like the money but we don't need the money mm-hmm. i mean you know i'm retired kate needs rather more than i do but you know we didn't set out on this thinking we can uh, make a lot of money out of this because you can't if you're doing what we're doing we can't really take advertising uh, we'd like sponsorship of course we would but you know if you're trying to set up yourself as being independent in these issues you have to stay like that but you're right the bbc trained the industry and it went back a long way uh, obviously when the bbc was the only broadcaster of course it did but even longer with itv and with radio or whatever you'd find uh, the bbc trained the industry uh, local radio was a particularly strong point of the week people were coming in. I think what bothers me about it, that the the BBC will remain um, and should remain a major force. But because of financial cuts, it's abdicated, in my view, its responsibility for training. Uh, the, the, The convenient thing financially to the BBC about independent production and using freelancers is you'd switch them on and off like that. And you have no ongoing responsibility. But what you're not, but what they should be saying is because we're using all these people and not staff member, who is training them legally, you know, on legal issues and other things. And they should be putting very significant resources into an independent training organization. Maybe other major broadcasters should put money in as well. But the BBC primarily should recognize so much of its output is now dependent upon indies and freelancers that it can't abdicate a role in training them. It would make sense for itself. So I think there's a scandalous dearth of training available for young people in this country, not just technical, of course, but journalistic and legal and whatever. And the BBC is moving out under the great financial pressure and leaving, it seems to me, a massive gap. And sooner or later, whole young people, through no fault of their own, will fall into this hole and then the broadcasters will condemn them for doing it. Well, that is hypocrisy of a high order. Mm-hmm. I suspect you're right about the ticking time bomb of media law training, I think, for particularly for the independent sector. I feel like, to a certain extent, we're in a situation where, you know, the responsibility is being left to individual freelancers to, to find their own training. And the reason why in this country we haven't had a huge amount of libel actions against podcasts is largely because it, they're seen as not making much money. But as soon as you start seeing headlines of very big deals happening with particularly sort of independent podcasts, then actually I think you will start to see those kind of libel issues. And I agree. I think there definitely needs to be some sort of independent training. And the, the secondary danger is a smaller danger, but a real danger is if a subject is really controversial and people don't have media training and confidence, they'll, oh, well, they'll step back mm. and they'll do the old on the one hand and the other. 
And, you know, the people confuse impartiality with due impartiality. It's due impartiality we should care about. Mm. You know, if people say two and two equals five, you don't have to put them on the box to say that against somebody who says two and two equals four. But if it's a controversial area, then if you're not trained and you're uncertain and you're nervous, your fallback instinct is to say, oh, well, they say this, they say that. And then you're failing your audience. But you can't blame young people for doing that if they haven't got the training. And Kate, do you feel that now being on the outside of, of the BBC, the sort of safety net of being able to refer up legal issues or anything like that, do you feel like you, you are on the front line of that now? Do you feel confident about do, doing that when you're producing your show? I suppose I haven't thought about it too, too much. And it's in your brain. Worried. It's but, in your brain. But it is in our brain. The pair of us have, have been in the BBC for so long that impartiality goes through us like a you know stick of rock. So um, we have got more, well, Roger has more freedom to give his point of view more, and he does. But I must say, every time Roger does reveal his point of view on something there's a part of me that's thinking oh, oh what's, the, what's the other side you know and should he say that and there's I'm, I'm always a bit nervous definitely when you when yeah. you, you, you well I mean the audience you know what I hope is that that, that uh, well we're talking about judgments I hope you know that you present the facts and then you present your judgment mm-hmm. if you like I hope we all still present the facts whereas what we do in feedback is present the facts and very rarely present a judgment except when from personal experience I know that's true um, so it is tricky I mean for example you know I could call Boris Johnson a liar on your program because if you challenge me I can tell you when he lied and who said he lied mm-hmm. and so on Roger's extremely good at picking up people we interview so if yeah. they make a point Roger will say well of course the BBC would say this mm-hmm. so I mean that comes from the, you know yeah. the years of experience Roger has that you know, we're both quite confident that we're, we're presenting something that is making sure that we hear both sides of the argument. But the, th- the thing for those sorts of interviews is that previously they would have always happened on places like the BBC, Channel 4. And now, more and more, they're not. They're happening on the news agents or, you know, these other well, platforms. Well, you're getting opinion, aren't you? I mean, this is the worry that um, opinion is cheap. Podcasting has to be cheap because of the... Um, because of the, 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 the finances of the economics of it. And therefore, when you've got, when, for example, you have the two historians speaking, uh, Dominic Sandbrook, and uh, I'm always tempted to say Peter Snow, but of course, Peter Snow's son. That's great fun because you know they're two brilliant historians. They have different perspectives. And who cares, actually, in the end, who's right, as long as they're entertaining <laughs> about something and mm-hmm. get you looked in another way. Uh, but if you're dealing with a matter of contemporary controversy mm. related to immigration or something like that, you don't just want opinion. You want fact. And, and again, that's an area where I did feel, for example, under Brexit, which is always a dangerous territory, fundamentally, uh, all of us failed the British public because there were two sides to this argument, weren't there? One is, do you want to consider leaving the European Union? Is it so uh, you, it, you criticize it and so on? The step after that is, what are you leaving it for? Is what is if as the other option better or not and also the people who wish you to leave what do they want you to leave for what's the sort of society they uh, do they want to create in terms of conservative right wing it'd be a low tax economy and so on nothing wrong with that but they weren't open about it and i think at broadcasters and podcasters we didn't do that for two reasons one is perhaps because in terms of the bbc they were too nervous in terms of the license fee Secondly, because the issues were very complex. And thirdly, I think because people were so opinionated on this, they weren't prepared to listen to anybody else. You're for, you're against. Mm. And the danger is that, I think, of podcasting is, well, the danger with broadcasters is they tend to avoid the issues. Mm. The danger with podcasting is they go straight for opinion. And there's a vast gap in the middle, which is information that should be given to people before they jump to opinions and so podcasting has in some ways to my mind liberated uh, the discourse in the way in which in a narrower way channel 4 did when it was founded in 1982 when there are a whole range of voices and opinions and attitudes which were pent up inside the existing broadcasters and channel 4 to a degree let them open the windows it's in my view got a bit narrower sense and podcasting has done the same but i think there has to be some sort of consolidation Mm. 
And you do wonder when regulation will start to rear its head. As podcasting gets more important, then regulation will start to come in, I think. We've definitely mentioned that on the podcast before. Kate, in terms of, we've kind of talked about the financial aspect, and that might be one of the reasons why the BBC can't keep hold of some of their talent. Have you kind of considered any of the other options about why it just doesn't seem to be able to keep hold of, whether it's getting rid of themselves or whether presenters are leaving to go onto another platform like podcasts? Why do you think that is? We spoke to Simon Mayo for our own podcast, but when we were at Feedback uh, over a year ago, I mean, his argument was that, you know, it's the changing media landscape. I can do more. I've got more freedom to go outside the BBC, take my podcast with me. We can do more uh, than what we had before. And the people who have been exiting, Peter Crouch and, and so forth, you know, frankly, they've built up their 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 podcast within the BBC mm-hmm. They can make more money. They've got more freedom to to go outside and and, and uh, capitalise on that, um, uh, and uh, you know likewise with the news agents. You do wonder though, will there come a point, as the BBC is being squeezed so much, how many big names will be able to make that leap mm. going forward? I don't know. And there's a natural turnover, and and also the other thing is that people are living and broadcasters are living longer. <laughs> <laughs> what used to happen with a lot of presenters was I remember this about John Timpson who you won't remember from the past he was on the BBC staff at the age of 60 he retired and he did retire and he'd go and write books but there was nowhere else for him to go really in terms of broadcast yeah. that he could write books Timpson's England and so on mm. suddenly people don't want to retire suddenly there are a whole range of options I mean and, and I think the motives change I mean one of the key motives was an interview actually with Ken Bruce um uh, just this morning in the Times. And one of the reasons he went, he mentioned, is a real gentleman, so you have to push him to get his reasons. <laughs> one of them was that, you know, deliberately uh, the government has made the BBC publish how much people earn. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to say that I earned £1,000 a program on feedback, which was 30000 a year. doesn't quite compare with some of the others, but yeah, that's fine. But uh, that doesn't bother me. But at the higher level, they, you know, they don't want that no. because it's over the Daily Mail. But that's a deliberate policy uh, from the members of the present government to try and again expose the BBC. So some people leave because they feel the BBC perhaps are looking over their shoulder for younger people to present them. Some are leave for money. Some are leave just for privacy. And also, some people will just want a risk and a change. I mean, if your life, if you've been doing something for 20 and 25 years, the idea that somebody, when you're, say, 60, want, offers you a fresh challenge. You know, BBC is never any good at making people feel wanted. Um, it takes you for granted. It almost treats you as if it's a privilege that you've, you've had a privilege to be able to broadcast yes. for all those years. <laughs> so you should be absolutely grateful and therefore they have no obligation to thank you properly or whatever. Mm. Yeah, you've had your time, move on. Mm. Well, if somebody comes to you and says, Ken, we really love you, we really want you, you think, hello, oh, this is rather nice. I mean, just good manners It's and such a simple fix though, and, isn't it? You know, it matters. If you're, and so you, yeah, well, actually, okay. What that, it's, it's, it's absolutely wild to me that that sort of level of communication is such a simple fix because you're right, we've all been there. We've all had our experiences at the BBC. We've all had our unceremonious goodbyes. It's brutal exits. <laughs> <laughs> but it does always seem to come down to that, that lack of care and lack of communication almost sometimes more than the financial aspects. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that there is this culture of not being able to speak to people in a way that might kind of facilitate actually well, I think there's Change two, in a, way. There a couple of things there. I mean, there always, I used to be a producer, right? So I always used to think presenters were, you know, got too much credit for programs and producers should get them. So maybe there's yeah. the element. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's the element going on. Uh, I think the other thing is that it, it's an inheritance from what somebody once called the brute force of monopoly. There was a time when the BBC had a monopoly and therefore, you know, you obeyed orders. It was like the civil service. In television, that changed pretty much when ITV, after ITV came and then Channel 4. In talk radio, speech radio, if you might say, and certainly in terms of documentaries, that sort of stuff, uh, it didn't change. So Radio 4, there was a certain arrogant elitism about it. Now, I'm a fan of Radio 4. Mm. 
still very much and please god it survives till the end of time but there's an arrogance there and of course you are very privileged to have a program on radio force you should be duly grateful you don't actually want to be paid for it do you i mean really <laughs> um, but also and radio because people were privileged to appear on it they didn't do it for income they did it because they were making programs about something else and, so. and i think that hasn't trickled sort of down mm. and then the bbc got into its frame of mind well now how can we save money well if we give more to independence we've absolved ourselves of any responsibility for talent or people or whatever there's the sum of money you don't want to do it okay you don't do it and there are lots of people that want to do it oh we'll cut the budget for 10 15 percent oh but we still want the same quality it's up to you to solve it but it is a function of absence of competition as well i mean i'm i'm afraid i just think it's lack of manners uh-huh. and i don't understand it at all and it, it keeps happening with one person after another, all it would take is, okay, you want to get rid of the presenter. You've decided six months' time or whatever. I mean, Simon Mayer was saying he had an agreement with the controller that, yes. you know, they'd tell each other six months in advance what was going to happen and, and smoother it. I mean, if you want to get rid of a presenter, you inform them in advance, you explain the reasoning behind it, and you just say thank you very much for everything you've done. You make sure you have a bottle of champagne at the end of it. Thanks and goodbye. You should do that in any walk of life. If you're a teacher leaving a school, a nurse leaving a hospital, this is basic manners that someone has given part of their life to an institution. You say thanks very much, give an idea of maybe why you're getting rid of them. And, you, th- you know, to me it's common manners and I, I, I don't understand how they get it wrong consistently we're both baffled by that <laughs> and it's and you want to be we're both sports at the bbc we die in the ditch uh we get into it late actually at the moment a bit later because but we would die in the ditch for it but it's baffling i mean it's incompetent it's just stupid in my own case and it doesn't matter in a way but i did it for 20 for three years um you know they, all they need to do was uh make an announcement a little bit earlier the time he agreed you know whatever and then last program give me a drink with two or three commissioning editors last 15 minutes half a glass of wine would do <laughs> maybe a full bottle goodbye thank you very much it's fine yeah. they don't do that no and you think well if you have that attitude to me mm. but of course you mustn't i mean I, we still the thing that I, I say time and time again to myself when i'm getting worked up is don't confuse the means and the ends. The most important thing is public service broadcasting. The means are secondary. Don't give your absolute loyalty to the BBC. Give your loyalty to public service broadcasting. I still believe the BBC is the best means to the end, but it's a means to an end. There are other means developing as well. Mm-hmm. Let's see how they go. The end's the most important thing. The means, well, BBC is still the best, but it may not always be. Mm. How do you think that the BBC can keep that sort of the idea that we all have or have had of the BBC? How do you think they can sustain that in the future? Now that we've they know what's happening, we can all see this trend. How do you think they can sort of claw some of that back? It's going to become harder for them because of you know young people not associating the BBC with excellence necessarily or the BBC is giving them something that they're interested in so I know with my own teenage sons you know they're sometimes listening to something they don't actually realise it's from the BBC I think the BBC is obviously world service broadcast and so forth it will inevitably attract a talent because they pay as well and it offers a permanent job so there there is an attraction there and and it will carry on but as the BBC's profile is diminishing, it's going to get harder for them. And that's through, as Roger said, you know, that their funding's being squeezed. So it's, I'm not quite sure what they can do about it. Well, I think it. one of the problems is that the, what, the, what has happened, partly because of a Conservative government being in power for so long and pushing it in a certain direction, is that the BBC is persuaded that the licence fee has got to go. Well, it will go, but I have question marks about the speed at which it needs to go. And it's got a board which is primarily business-focused. And what it's been trying to create is an international business which will survive without the licence fee. Now, this makes sense if you look at the BBC and broadcast as fundamentally from uh, an industrial perspective in terms of jobs for this country and so on. That's all fine. What there hasn't been, which needs to go along with that, is a debate about what does public service broadcasting or public service media, what is it in the 21st century and for the next 20 years? 
And you should decide what that is, what is, and then decide whether BBC in its present form or Channel 4, whatever, are structured in the way to deliver that. Instead, what we've got is, it's about Channel 4, it's about the BBC, it's about their survival. But I don't care ultimately about their survival in the sense that I care first about public service broadcasting. So what you have to, ought to be uh, is a proper debate. I mean, you know, it, it, just look at the BBC. If I'm a shareholder in a company, I can go to an annual general meeting and I can ask questions. Now, maybe nothing happens, but I can ask questions. I can vote. I can vote directors off or attempt to. In the BBC, people have to pay the licence fee. They have no vote. Moreover, the BBC doesn't tell them the truth in terms of the nature of the cuts it's imposing or whatever. It wants to manage change like any company. Well, that's fine, but at certain points, you have to talk to those who pay for you. So we need a debate now and pretty quickly about public service. Now, part of it would be market failure. Uh, you look at what's happening in local media, the destruction of local media. And you say, is that healthy for democracy? What can we do? doesn't mean the BBC has to do everything, but you start to look at the possibility of community radio or the BBC hosting uh, local podcasts and, and putting some money into that to, to try and help democracy within various areas. You also look, I mean, I would look at, uh, the, obviously, the news and current affairs area. I would look at music and strengthen the role that BBC and the responsibilities has in terms of new music and also classical music, etc., etc. You look at all services, people who are blind, etc. You've got to have a relook at, at what public service should be and whether the minorities that we thought about in 1940s are the same minorities today or there are different minorities that need to be catered for. And then you say, now, to what extent can the national broadcasters deal with this or do we have to have other sort of forms? And the final thing I would say of this, but this goes back a long way. I used to present Right to Reply and so on for Channel 4. That was a unique idea with Channel 4, that uh, the audience, they would do slightly more opinionated programs, but the audience could actually say what they think and argue back. So Channel 4 should bring back, should bring back <laughs> Right to Reply. The BBC should make feedback weekly rather than 30 a year. And the other thing I would say for immediately you could do is resuscitate in a different form the community's programs units that used to operate on BBC television. And that was the idea. Idea, that there's 30 or 40 minutes a week funded by the BBC in which they keep an oversight in terms of legal defamation and so on, but where minority groups can say what they feel and what they want. And if you go and back and look at those programmes, you see the breadth of, of attitudes of being. It's the first place where you'd say a lot of gay programme in terms of black minorities and whatever, where they're able to push their case and take to a predominantly white audience and so on. Hold on, this is happening. Listen. We need to create those spaces, but I don't think we'll do them unless we ask that fundamental question, which is what are public service media to be? Right, and then we'll deal with the BBC. Mm. For those at the BBC who may be at the end of contracts, thinking of moving on, or maybe just looking for a change, and thinking about podcasts as a bit of a, a change into something new, more independence in your wake, potentially, what would be the things you would let them know about before they depart? There's virtually no money in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to see podcasting differently. In reference to your question earlier, which I didn't, we didn't really address, it was, I was aware that we needed to attract the BBC Radio 4 feedback audience. So quality was important with the podcast and we didn't want ads. You know, if you're a BBC listener, people are put off by ads. We've made a judgment that we don't want to introduce ads into our podcast at the moment. First of all, it would be a visible amount of money. Secondly, we don't want to put off listeners coming to us. So that's a strategy that we've decided on. Unfortunately, the podcast that we're doing isn't an easy one to sponsor. Who wants to sponsor something about public service broadcasting? It's, it's a bit bit niche. It's not ideal. No, we wouldn't want the BBC to sponsor it either. No, no. You know, whereas if we're an outdoor you know, podcast, then you get outdoor clothing sponsors or what have you. We're quite different in that. But, you know, it is something we are doing and we're setting out that we're giving ourselves a period of time. It's not something you're going to be successful in all overnight. You've got to go into it with your eyes wide open that there's not a lot of money there necessarily. But then I think you need to see it as a, a wider thing. So 
yes, Patreon is, we're building up subscribers. And yes, we've started off with nothing and it cost us. But we're now getting to the point is it's not actually going to be costing us anymore. Obviously, Roger's a, a brand now. So he's been doing articles that he's had three opinion pieces in The Guardian and so forth. Um, so I think you need to see it as it's a part of a package. I think if you want to do a podcast on its own, you're not going to make a great deal of money. You've got to keep going for quite a long time until you can get to that point. So I would say go into it with your eyes wide open. I must say we've thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, it's been a fantastic experience. But I would say that I don't know a great deal about podcasts. You know much more, so correct me if I'm wrong. But here's here's three suggestions for three sorts of podcasts, right? The first podcast I made by people who earn their income elsewhere and enjoy doing it and have a lot of expertise to pay. There are those people who are doing it because they're advertising something else. It's a comedian going on tour, make a lot of money for a tour. Yes, if you do it on your podcast, you're drawing attention to something else or a book or the other thing is part of a marketing strategy for something like a book and so on. Uh, The other thing would be with organizations that would like for political or other purposes to make their name. So I think you're looking at all of those things together and probably some more. But it is narrow casting. And I don't think we should say it as a replacement for broadcasters. And I think the fundamental danger for public service broadcasters is what I think will succeed and make money in podcasting will broadly what makes money in television, which is thrillers, detective stories, crime, celebrity. These are the things which will tend to make you money uh, in podcasting. And fine, if you want to do that, there's no reason you shouldn't do it. But I think outside of that, it's a struggle in terms of. Um, so you have to do it for love or because there's something else you do that it will assist in advertising. Mm-hmm. And the reason we can do it or I can do it at the moment is, you, you know, I've got a pension, so I don't have to worry about income. Um, I think to be absolutely blunt, I mean, you know, I've been extraordinarily lucky that Kate is prepared to stick in in the way she has with virtually no remuneration, mm. you know, because as she would say to you, she's very much younger than I am. (laughs) (laughs) But then thinking about, you know, we often talk about how podcasters can sustain making a podcast. Do you think often it actually does come down to the listeners? Because, you know, despite the various defund the BBC hashtags, there are still plenty of people in the country who are happy to pay their licence fee. So do you think that they would equally be happy to support you if you if you, if you're always open about the fact that this isn't getting you very much money but that to keep well, going well, that you, well, would, we you so. need their financial support? But if you're going to do that, you have to offer something which is unique. And, uh, you know, we obviously think to a degree we do, although we wish we weren't in some ways. We wish... Broadcasting was more open and honest about a number of issues, really. I have two contradictory feelings. On the one hand, I do feel that in order to make the best programs with original material, you need to get a certain concentration of money and production talent. On the other hand, the range of debate and opinion in this country has been far too narrow, and podcasting has enabled a range of voices you wouldn't otherwise have heard to be heard and my frustration is that a lot of the voices i hope well i just hope the broadcasters pick up a lot of people from podcasting and give them the resources they need to do original research and programming and i have no worry for podcasters who do true crime and entertainment and those things like that i think the larger or news the larger organizations will look after that i think for a lot of other people going with their eyes eyes open that this probably won't make you money But it is a way of widening and extending the debate in whatever area you are and guaranteeing that we had a greater breadth of opinion being expressed than is usually expressed. I mean, I'm a bit more optimistic. I mean, we have, as we've got the coverage, our subscribers have gone up. Mm -hmm. So we, we have steadily gone up. And I think in the podcasting world, it can take you years to really establish yourself. I think you've got to eyes wide open about that the publicity side of of the podcast is vital because that brings us to the attention of of people and i would say i mean it's hard to say who our listeners are um yes there will have been some radio for feedback people who've discovered us and you know there were some especially at the beginning saying oh i'm glad you're still going Mm. roger great to hear your voice but we're very much being listened to 
my BBC people, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people you see people uh, are listening to us. A lot of people in the press are listening to us. We've got very high caliber listeners, I would say. We even have a newspaper who actually approaches our PR guide to say, oh, are you publishing today? So we're definitely on the radar. Mm. And, and the increased publicity we have, that, that's spurring more, more subscribers. And people are, you know, it's not a lot of money, but people do appreciate us. And as long as I, we carry on having good quality interviews, which I think we, we have had, we've had some incredible names and i think we continue to hit the right note with all our with our guests i'm i'm more hopeful than roger <laughs> we oh, might no, see no, a bit more no, money I'm not, coming I'm not, in i'm not yeah, i'm not <laughs> I, I, look i this has been the most wonderful extension of active life you know. <laughs> podcasting prolongs active life if you remember the old dog food advert pow <laughs> prolongs active life i think it's the most for, for something like me but i just want to if it, for the your younger listeners who are going into this uh, going into it's wonderful it's great fun going with your eyes open mm. about the finances of it mm-hmm. But if you want to express your opinions, explore things, have, don't have, you know, senses, anybody sitting over you censoring you that you could be taken to the libel court, so watch out, be careful. Um, it's a fantastic thing to do. I mean, it is a wonderful opportunity, but it might not necessarily be a lucrative one. Mm. Although, to be fair, when I joined the BBC, my line manager said, we won't be able to make you rich, but we'll make you famous. He didn't really make me both, so... <laughs> <laughs> so just in terms of what's next for you guys what do you, what are you sort of thinking in terms of obviously your podcast is still very much in its infancy what was it you said September you said September so, 24th was our first one so, so I think we're series two I think we've done we've been on air every single week we haven't had a break yet mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we haven't got anybody for this week, Kate. No, we haven't. <laughs> maybe, maybe the Easter break comes Iron early. Through the fire. <laughs> we, I think we'll just keep on going. We're news hounds, so we love it at, at the moment. Well, um, I mean, you look at it, and the Labour Party is only finally uh, this weekend putting together a, a working party on the future of the independence of the BBC and so on, uh, using some of the old lags that have been there from the past. I mean, this debate is going to go on and on. We're in such a period of change. And you ultimately have to fight, we'll have to fight for the things that matter. And, you know, I, this gets cliched, we sound rather pompous, but, you know, as objective and impartial as broadcasting as your podcasting as you can do, while bringing in the range of voices that are not normally heard, is something that we still believe in. As much opinion is, we think there are questions that should be answered and are not being asked. And we'll keep on doing that. And that'll happen increasingly as finances get tighter, as ITB questions whether it wants to be a public service broadcaster, as Channel 4, I think, continues has its problems. That question, and you look at the American dominance uh, in every way, that will be asked. And, and, and if you get sort of, you know, um, wonder about the purpose of all of this, if you look at the United States, where 70% of Republicans believe that Donald Trump was cheated of the election and there was widespread vote ringing, and they believe that because there's no tradition as we have of the range of broadcasting, regulated broadcasting and whatever. They believe all that. Silo is speaking to Silo. This is why I still defend the BBC in an age of podcasting. We need two things. We need somewhere you can trust as a source of information. And then you want the widest range of opinion. And the danger of a broadcaster like the BBC in the past is that it's narrowed the range of conversation and been too influenced by its paymasters or by convention. In the future, we could have the best of both worlds if we're careful. A properly funded state, if you like, broadcasters, plural, or podcasters, who you know are giving you unvarnished as far as possible information. And then the widest range of views, including people who in the past have been disenfranchised, and that would apply to a lot of minorities. And that's what we want to try to be a little minuscule element of bringing about. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and a lot of food for thought, especially around the BBC and its brain drain. So thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. And as you can see, we really, or I really do, like talking about myself. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Much quieter and more sensible. <laughs> thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. 
So that was Roger Bolton and Kate Dixon with a really interesting in-depth chat all about the BBC and about the pros and cons and the highs and the lows. Reem, what stood out for you? So one thing that stood out for me was the fact that that he was very transparent about how much the BBC pays younger journalists and and young freelancers and the fact that like if you're going to be working at the BBC just have that realistic expectation of you might not earn much and also you might not have a stable contract because you mm-hmm. might have just a very limited contract mm-hmm. which I think a lot of younger people should be hearing because mm-hmm. at least okay they're still going to come into the BBC, they're still going to have that on their CV, they're still going to use it to their advantage, but at least they'll know that there that there is a risk to it and, and that they should just kind of lower their expectations of how much they're actually going to be rewarded and how much they're going to mm. be appreciated in the company so that they're not disappointed later on. And Kate was talking about what a brilliant training ground the BBC is, actually, and I guess you are always learning you're kind of always learning on your feet a little bit kind of constantly thrown in the deep end which actually for long-term producing or presenting is always a really good thing matt yeah i mean the bbc used to have a brilliant mini site called the college of journalism which allowed people not just bbc staff to scrub up on their media law Mm. amongst other things and we really do need something like that in the wider audio industry and i sort of feel like it's incumbent on the bbc to do that it certainly would stand them in better stead with the entire sector if they did. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, they've got less resources and maybe it's the kind of thing they can't spend the money on. But then you do see situations like City University starting their podcasting degree yes. and say, well, actually, you know, if they can plug into their existing brilliant journalism courses to be able to provide education for producers all over the country, you know, in media law and those things, that would be a real step forward. So maybe others will fill the gap. But I would like to see the BBC trying to educate and train the industry as they have done for many years and that's really one of the big secrets of British creative industries is Mm. the BBC trains a lot of people and they go on to do great things elsewhere. That's really interesting what you picked up on about City because when I was doing some lecturing there the students all came in one day having just had to do their media law exam. (laughs) I've never seen such a sad bunch (laughs) but I thought it was really impressive that they were having to learn this. They had to take it as part of their journalism course and it will stand them in really it might be horrible now but they will be very grateful for that in the future i think yeah yeah yeah. it's not it's not pretty it's a three-hour exam and it is not not a nice thing to do but it is really really good and there's so much i learned from that that uh, i still i still use every day I have a lot of traumatizing memories of my entire undergrad degree finishing like the NCTJ and doing my media law exams and, and whatnot. And, but it is it does help. It does help because it, it's good to have it on your portfolio. Of course. Thank you so much, both. That felt like such a, a meaty conversation. It was nice to kind of pick out some of the really salient points. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. You can find out so much more on podpod.com. Loads of articles there, lots written by Reem as well. And you can sign up to our daily email bulletins to make sure that you never miss a thing. You can find us on socials at podpodofficial. And if you get a chance, do give us a little subscribe and a rating. We would love it. And we would love to hear from you genuinely. What do you want to know about podcasting? Ask us and we will do our best for you to find out. Thank you again to Roger Bolton and Kate Dixon and to Matt and Reem, my faves. The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media, and I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon. Thanks, Freya. Bye. Bye, Freya. Hello. <laughs> no, that's, that's what you say at the start. <laughs> <laughs>